Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The implications of the recent Supreme Court decision on jurisdiction will take years to fully comprehend. It could have far-reaching effects on tribal sovereignty. Tribal leaders and Native legal advocates are mapping out strategies to shape how the ruling in the Castro Huerta case plays out in the coming months and years. Will state law enforcement officials travel freely on reservation land? Could it strengthen public safety for tribal citizens? We'll ponder these questions and take your calls, coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland traveled to Oklahoma over the weekend for the first stop on her Road to Healing tour to hear from former Indian boarding school students and descendants. The tour is part of Holland's federal investigation into U.S. Indian boarding schools and their impacts on tribal communities. The investigation was launched last year and includes gathering testimony and finding trauma-informed support for healing. Holland was joined by Interior Department staff and tribal officials at a gym packed with people at the River Indian School in Anadarko. The first hour of Saturday's event was open to the press to hear remarks from officials. The rest of the day was closed to provide space for participants to share their stories. Native News Online reports some boarding school survivors did speak publicly during the first hour, recounting painful memories of the trauma they endured at boarding school, including physical, mental, and sexual abuse. Holland has expressed the need to gather testimony, acknowledging it won't be easy, but says it's a necessary part of the investigation. A federal judge last week denied a motion by the state of North Dakota to dismiss a voting rights lawsuit by the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians and the Spirit Lake Nation, KFYR-TV reports. The lawsuit is challenging North Dakota's legislative redistricting, claiming it violates the Voting Rights Act. It claims the state's new redistricting law dilutes the voting strength of Native American voters from the reservations by packing Turtle Mountain Reservation in one district and cracking out Spirit Lake, reducing from two to one the number of state house seats Native voters have an opportunity to elect their candidate of choice. The tribes want a redistricting plan that combines both reservations in a single legislative district. The case is now expected to proceed. Chronic wasting disease is fatal for wildlife and it might be dangerous for hunters who depend on those animals for food and traditional practices. That's why researchers are training dogs to sniff out the disease on the Blackfeet Nation in Montana. Aaron Bolton reports. At the Working Dogs for Conservation training facility near Missoula, trainer Michelle Vasquez releases a rambunctious black lab named Charlie. He begins looking for blank-footed ferret scent hidden in one of a handful of containers on the floor. The other ones have like bedding in them, rocks, grass, maybe prairie dog scent, whatever we think that they might encounter in the wild. Charlie quickly finds the right scent and is rewarded with a stuffed pink dragon to play with. Good job, bud. Later this summer, Vasquez will train dogs like Charlie to sniff out chronic wasting disease in deer and elk scat on the Blackfeet Nation. 
Blackfeet Water Researcher Suta Callinglass' nonprofit Indigenous Vision is leading the project. Right now it feels a little scary because we we don't know the impact, we don't know where it's at, and uh, we don't know what it's going to look like 20 years from now. CWD hasn't been shown to infect humans, but federal health officials and researchers haven't ruled it out completely. Collinglass says CWD could threaten food security for Blackfeet tribal members and says it's already pushed some people away from cultural practices like brain tanning because it's considered high risk. Currently, the only way to know where the disease is present is to test animals shot by hunters or killed on highways, which takes a lot of time and resources tribes don't always have. Calling Last hopes the dogs will be a new way for wildlife managers to detect the disease early and protect herds that serve as food and cultural resources for tribal members. For National Native News, I'm Aaron Bolton. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by StrongHearts Native Helpline, providing no-charge confidential support and resources to Native Americans affected by domestic and sexual violence 24-7 at 1-844-7-NATIVE or strongheartshelpline.org. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Tribal leaders and legal scholars are working to grasp the full significance of the recent Supreme Court decision in the Castro Huerta case. It's one of the more significant rulings affecting Indian country and has to do with who has jurisdiction on tribal land. The Supreme Court decided that the federal government and the state have jurisdiction along with the tribes on reservation land. In the majority opinion, Justice Brett Kavanaugh said that tribal land is, quote, part of the state, not separate from the state. Those might be difficult words to hear for those who advocate for tribal sovereignty. The decision comes almost exactly two years since the McGirt decision by the Supreme Court that tribal leaders, especially those in Oklahoma, praised. We'll get the context for both decisions and look at the next steps. We also want to hear from you. Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We've got three guests today that will help us better understand the background and significance of the Castro Huerta ruling. First up is Elizabeth Hidalgo Reese. She is an assistant professor at Stanford Law School. She is Nambe Pueblo. Elizabeth, great to have you back on the show. Great to be here. Elizabeth, I watched the webinar that NCAI hosted last week uh, about Castro Huerta, and you were one of the presenters, and you really stressed what's at stake here. It's not about tribes having the right to prosecute non-Native people, but about tribes having the right to self-governance. Why is that? So, absolutely. So, uh, the way that I like to describe it is that the right to actually 
uh, have tribal sovereignty over your territory only has real meaning if that authority is independent. So, uh, you know, when I teach federal Indian law, for example, uh, we actually divide things up into sort of three units. Um, one unit on whether or not the federal government has jurisdiction and can do something in Indian territory, one unit on whether a tribe can do something, and one unit on whether a state can do something. Now, this case certainly falls into the section of my course about whether or not a state can actually do something within Indian territory. However, uh, when you're talking about criminalizing conduct, if a state is making a different choice about whether or not something is a crime than what the tribe would decide to do, then they're effectively taking that choice away from the tribe by saying, stepping in and saying, you know, we don't care what decision you might make over your land about whether or not, say, I think a good example here that's coming up a lot is reproductive rights. You know, if a tribe wanted to make a different choice um, about uh, access to abortion on their land, um, now that the state can, you know, effectively come in uh, and make a, a choice for them, or uh, then that uh, is an independent right to make that choice is taken away. Mm-hmm. Well, Rebecca, we remember the rejoicing from tribal leaders and native legal advocates when McGirt was first announced two years ago, and you had a very personal reaction when Castro Huerta came down. Tell us about your response to the two decisions. Yeah, um, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here and be joined by all of these amazing legal minds. Um, you know, McGirt was a real victory for Muscogee Creek Nation, for the tribes like my tribe, Cherokee Nation, who subsequently got our reservations affirmed. You know, we lived in a state that for over a century pretended like our legal and treaty rights didn't exist. And we had a strong court decision um, that said that they still did. And so it was a huge win um, for indigenous lands rights and treaty rights and for our rights here in Oklahoma. Unfortunately, what happened as a result is that Oklahoma immediately started attacking the decision, both in the press and in the courts. And, you know, they um, sowed this lie that the decision had led to all of this chaos and, you know, criminals going free and that it had been a mess on the ground. Um, you know, the transition wasn't, um, the impact wasn't nothing. You know, there was a big shift in criminal jurisdiction. But according to some reporting that I worked on um, with Allison Herrera, it was not the chaos and confusion that Oklahoma claimed. And actually, a lot of the figures that they shared with the Supreme Court were not only exaggerated, but according to our reporting, actually appeared to be fabricated. Um, okay. The Supreme Court bought that, um, that lie and um, ruled in favor of Oklahoma in the Castro decision. And I, I you know, I was um, really disheartened to read the decision, both because um, you know, it was based on bad information from the state. Um, I think we can see, I'm sure we'll talk about this more, um, we can already see from how the law works in PL-280 states that concurrent jurisdiction is not what is best for Native victims of crime. Um, but I think what's really scary about the Castro decision is not 
what the Supreme Court decided, but how it got there. Um, and it's a very extreme interpretation of states' rights on tribal land that I think has scary implications um, for future Supreme Court decisions. We're speaking right now with Rebecca Nagel. She's a writer and advocate and host of This Land podcast. And Rebecca, you're in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. You're a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. And apologize for not giving you a, a more formal introduction just now uh, when I, I switched over to you. But uh, you talk about, you know, the state. And I think what's so alarming here, the irony is that the state of Oklahoma uh, and even the Supreme Court is evidenced by the majority decision is that they have presented themselves as these advocates for native crime victims, right? And you just said it, this argument that, hey, the feds and the tribes, they can't handle this influx of new cases since the McGirt ruling. Uh, they, they've thrown the figure on 18,000 prosecutions in one year went uninvestigated, apparently. And because of this, thousands of native people are being failed by the law enforcement and criminal justice system. And, and they are essentially the saviors. Now, I, I mean, how, how much did that influence the court? Because you've got this data, you, you, cha- you, you, know, you wrote a scathing article in the Atlantic earlier this year, and you challenged that data as grossly inaccurate. What's going on here? Why is there such a wide difference between the figures you calculated and what the state was using? Yeah, so I think when, I, I, we know that the Supreme Court took uh, Oklahoma at its word because that 18,000 number is in the decision. And not only is that 18,000 number in the decision, but Kavanaugh writes that, you know, this idea of lawlessness is why the Supreme Court granted cert to Castro Huerta in the first place. Um, and so we looked into two numbers that Oklahoma put in its cert petition and in its brief. Um, And I'll just go through both of them real quick. So the first number that Oklahoma floated um, was that 76,000 past convictions. So people who had already been convicted and who were already in state prison could be overturned because of McGirt. This point is now moot because Oklahoma courts have ruled that the McGirt decision doesn't actually apply to old convictions. But this was um, the number that Oklahoma actually used to try and get the Supreme Court to take the case. And in their brief, they said that that number came from local prosecutors in Oklahoma. And so we just filed open records requests with those district attorneys and said, hey, just hand over to us the number that you gave to the governor because we wanted to check the math. And the response we got from district attorneys was shocking. What they said is, we don't know what you're talking about. We never gave the governor any number. And so that number that appeared in their cert petition appears to be fabricated. We followed up with both the lawyer who wrote that cert petition and the governor's office, and they both declined to comment. What we found was that it was actually about 200 past convictions that had been overturned, and only a few dozen of those had actually, you know, just been released to the street and aren't in some kind of, it's actually about 33 that had been released to the street and aren't, Oklahoma isn't trying to get them back in prison. So the number of people who got out free and clear and weren't retried in tribal or federal court is pretty small. Now that second okay, number, so, they're talking about, oh, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I'm just, it's, it's crazy, 200 versus 18,000. That's yeah, <laughs> it's just said, completely yeah, off the same. conviction, they said, 76,000. And then the 18,000 number is how many annually going forward. So 18,000 a year are going to shift from state to federal or tribal prosecution. 
It's okay. hard to get exact numbers, but we found that it was actually more about 13,000 and that in terms of Oklahoma's annual prosecutions going down. And then when we looked at how much federal and tribal prosecutions had gone up, it had gone up by about 12,000. So if there was any gap in prosecution, it was less than 1,000. And because we were comparing annual numbers over the years of COVID, COVID accounted for some of that. And so this gap of thousands or, you know, over 10,000 cases that Oklahoma tried to imply, when we try to flesh out the data, it just didn't show up in the data. Okay. And then another issue is whether or not uh, the, the tribes have the criminal jurist, uh, the criminal justice capacity, as well as the federal government, whether they have enough resources to handle these caseloads. And that's also something that's that that you're at odds with with regards to to what the Supreme Court ruled and, and what the state of Oklahoma is saying as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the number, I mean, tribes, especially um, have increased the number of cases they're prosecuting annually exponentially. You know, so, uh, you know, my tribe has gone from prosecuting 68 ca- cases annually to thousands, you know, I think over 3,000 in 2021. And so, um, you know, tribes have hired more staff, they've hired more police, they've hired more prosecutors. Um, half of the prosecutors we've actually hired came from district attorney's offices in Oklahoma. And so, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to think, okay, well, one court system is going to have less cases and another court system is going to have more. Well, what do you do? And it's really just a shift of resources. And so I think that's another okay. thing that's really ironic about this decision is that for a large part, that shift has All already right. happened. And Rebecca, I'm sorry, we are going to have to take a break now. Listeners, 1-800-996-2848. We're talking about the recent Supreme Court ruling on Castro Huerta. Give us a call. We'll be right back. Danny Wilbur just walked free after 18 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. Those years were spent filing mountains of legal documents to prove his case. We'll talk with Wilbur about his case and how he kept up his optimism that the truth would one day come to light. That's on the next Native America Calling. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, protecting tribal sovereignty, and keeping dollars in Indian Country are Amerind's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're discussing the recent Supreme Court ruling in Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta. The decision grants greater state authority in Indian country. We also want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about the recent Supreme Court decision, join the conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. 1-800-996-2848. We're speaking right now with Rebecca Nagel, a writer and an advocate uh, and host of This Land podcast. And we're also speaking with Elizabeth Hidalgo-Reese. She's an assistant professor at Stanford Law School. And I would like to have Elizabeth talk a little bit more uh, about the legal precedent that's occurred here. But before I do, I do I, I would like for Rebecca to go ahead and, and finish what she was talking about with regard to 
uh, the Cherokee Nation and other tribes that have been impacted by McGirt that have greatly increased their capacity to handle their criminal justice responsibilities, Rebecca, and, and regarding the state's this issue that, that they're overblown, these concerns that, this, that the, the tribes and the feds can't handle it all. Please continue your, what you're saying. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think what we've seen is that, you know, the five tribes have greatly increased um, their police force, you know, Ch- Choctaw Nation built a new courthouse. Um, people have hired prosecutors, tribes, um, Chickasaw Nation did this, have also hired um, special assistant U.S. attorneys, so lawyers, prosecutors who can work in both tribal and federal court. And so tribes have really um, stepped up to the plate and increased their prosecutions. And so when you dig into the data, the gap that Oklahoma claims of, you know, thousands or over 10,000 cases going unprosecuted um, just isn't there. Okay. Let's go back to Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, the McGirt decision was handed down exactly two years ago, almost to the day. Would we be talking about a different set of circumstances with Castro Huerta if we did not have the McGirt decision that confirmed tribal boundaries in Oklahoma? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it's really hard to to see Castro Huerta um, uh, without McGirt, but also without just a really, you know, particular set of circumstances um, that has happened over uh, the last few years in the makeup of the court. Um, you know, Justice Gorsuch, you know, being on the court in the first place um, is. Uh, a unique set of circumstances, though, that, you know, brought uh, justice who had some unique insights in Indian country to the bench that I think has already proved uh, to be itself to be really valuable. Um, as you mentioned, you know, McGirt was decided in 2020 by um, a, it was a 5-4 decision with Justice Gorsuch and the four uh, democratically appointed justices on the bench at the time. Um, it was of course, a resounding and uh, victory and an exciting decision for um, those of us in Indian country, because, you know, not only uh, was it, you know, a win, but it was the type of win that was really uh, unexpected. You know, as as I like to think, sometimes it feels like the Indians uh, just always have to lose <laughs> for some reason um, in Indian law, uh, especially when there are such powerful interests at stake, like the state of Oklahoma uh, brought to bear. And so McGirt was just, you know, an incredible victory. And uh, Justice Gorsuch's opinion in McGirt was really powerful. It had a lot of rhetoric about the United States keeping its promises that, you know, is the type of thing we really haven't seen in Indian law, um, at least not in a very, very long time, if not ever. So, you know, McGirt was fantastic, but then, you know, shortly afterwards, uh, one of those five votes, Justice Ginsburg, died um, and was replaced by Justice Barrett. And pretty immediately thereafter, the state of Oklahoma brought a petition asking the court to overturn that decision. Um, the court, you know, did not decide to do that. However, as sort of a alternative, um, to completely overturning McGirt, the state of Oklahoma did ask the court to give them back some of the powers that they would have exercised if um, they had overturned McGirt. So, you know, in this instance, 
power to prosecute non-Indian on Indian crimes, um, even if the land remained Indian country. But by doing that um, and by raising the question sort of as broadly as they did, um, they not only made this uh, case about what would happen in Oklahoma and over this large swath of territory that is now Indian country uh, within Oklahoma after McGirt, but about all of the uh, reservations within the entire country um, mm-hmm. because they didn't raise this question as just, you know, this whether or not the reservations within Oklahoma um, are specifically uh, right. like Indian. Yeah. So right. because of that, this now is a nationwide issue. Um, and okay. so in some ways, this is a follow up to McGirt that's gotten bigger. Yeah. And I want to talk about that because that was another thing that came up during that NCA webinar last week is the uncertainty and how this could potentially impact so many other issues in Native communities, tribal economies, uh, Indian Child Welfare Act, VAWA. We heard Cherokee Nation uh, Principal Chief mm-hmm. Chuck Hoskins say, we haven't seen an assault like this in 200 years, a decision that yeah. unravels 200 years of precedent. So I'm curious, like, what does this mean now? Is it Could state law enforcement officials now patrol the Navajo Nation or Pine Ridge or, or any other reservations throughout the United States? Right. So, you know, I want to be super clear about a couple of things. So first of all, you know, states have already had criminal jurisdiction within Indian country, um, specifically to prosecute non-Indian on non-Indian crimes. So this isn't, you know, the first uh, reach into uh, tribal territories of state criminal jurisdiction. Um, so so first, I want to be clear about that. Um, the other thing is that I actually think it's it's good to you know, remember McGirt and sort of how McGirt was decided and then played out afterwards as we're thinking about this decision. Um, Because, you know, any court case is going to have the, you know, litigants, the parties who are specific to that court case, and the decision will immediately take effect for those parties. In this case, the Cherokee Nation. Um, But if there is uh, rhetoric within the opinion that is broader, then there will be other cases which will then take that broad rhetoric and apply it similarly um, to other reservations, other territories. And so that is why um, folks are so concerned is because the reasoning and the rhetoric of this opinion um, applies, seems to apply to all reservations um, all Indian country um, throughout the nation and and to every state. Um, Of course, you know, that will need to be worked out. One of the things that um, the court left room for is, you know, it essentially said that there is presumptive state jurisdiction over Indian territory unless uh, Congress has preempted that jurisdiction. And so, you know, it's possible that tribes will be able to say that, you know, their land has uh, specifically uh, been sort of left out of that by Congress, um, whether it's by treaty or by by some other federal law. Um, but uh, it, it does seem that, you know, as states are um, going forward, uh, trying to use this authority um, or not, um, this will all get worked out in the courts. Um, although one thing I also you know, want to flag, especially for folks who might be, you know, in position 
in positions as either tribal leaders or law enforcement, or et cetera, is that, you know, a lot of this is going to come down to uh, folks on the ground and how they're working out the realities of this jurisdiction and this authority. And so it's really important to like have these conversations <laughs> with your counterparts about what to do and what, you know, what the state actually wants to do, because it's entirely possible, especially in some instances, that the states may not actually want to exercise this authority. Um, mm -hmm. You know, policing and prosecuting cases in Indian country is incredibly expensive, um, and it's also very difficult and complicated. Uh, and so, you know, having these conversations about what that means, particularly with uh, the folks in states like now uh, is, I think, a really great idea. Okay. And uh, this whole idea of, of conversation, and, and this is interesting because it kind of echoes what you talked about last week in that webinar. And, and I felt one of the most poignant moments during that whole presentation when you said that in the past, when tribes have suffered a major legal defeat like this, they've taken those losses alone. But now people are taking notice, they're paying attention to tribal sovereignty. And that really hits home for me because I think one of the biggest challenges facing tribal sovereignty is getting people to understand what it is. And I find myself sometimes in conversations with non-natives about tribal sovereignty, and very often they're, they're misinformed about what powers tribes possess as sovereign nations, what powers they don't possess. They're confused, even among native people. Many of us are confused, I'm confused. So my question to you is now, is this a teachable moment yeah, no, I absolutely think it is. And I think one of the um, frustrating things for me is that it feels like a a, a teachable moment of, of, of uh, for the court itself, um, because uh, one of the things that at least I have noticed in some of the Indian law decisions um, so far from the Supreme Court um, is that I think in maybe even differently than some courts past, uh, this court seems to be paying attention to some of the realities or what, you know, going back to your conversation with Rebecca earlier, like what, what it thinks the realities of um, public safety um, in Indian country are as something that matters for how it's going to decide some of these cases. And so I think that means that, you know, trying to get as correct as possible um, this picture in the mind of the justices of like what's really going on and how these things work, um, so they understand um, what the public safety concerns really are, um, really matters. But that's incredibly difficult because you know, in this instance, I think the picture that it seems to be uh, that seems to be happening in the mind of the justices in the majority is that. This is just a case of more prosecutors and, mm -hmm. you know, having more prosecutors and more personnel in Indian country to prosecute these crimes is a good thing because that just helps with public safety. Um, but, of course, that's, you know, and, and there's there's no infringing on tribal sovereignty if we just, you know, have more resources and public safety officers. But, of course, that's not the case. Um, you know, they're not noticing that you're there's different laws at issue with different sovereigns prosecuting. And they're also 
not noticing that, um, you know, quite frustratingly to me, uh, that uh, this point that actually Justice Kavanaugh, the author of this majority opinion, actually made when he quoted from uh, the U.S. attorney's brief, um, uh, amicus brief that was filed, you know, a few terms ago in United States versus Cooley during that case's oral argument, um, that the overlapping jurisdictions, you know, having multiple jurisdictions overlap in Indian country creates what he just, you know, what the U.S. attorneys described and he quoted as an indefensible morass of, mm. um, of yeah. chaos, well, basically. I, absolutely. And I want to, I want to talk more about that. Some of these inflammatory words that, that were used, uh, when, when Justice Kavanaugh penned that majority decision. And let's bring another legal voice into the conversation now. Robert Miller. He's a law professor at Arizona State University and a tribal judge. He is Eastern Shawnee. Robert, you've been on the show before. Welcome back. Thank you very much, Sean. You bet. And Robert, I think what everyone is most concerned about right now is what this means for the future. And, and I just want to throw this out there. Is it possible to say with any certainty now how Castro Huerta will ultimately impact Indian country? Well, that's never possible, of course. I have a lot of comments on what Rebecca has said and what Liz has been saying. Uh, we are losing the public relations war, as Rebecca already said, and her article was very welcome about the criminal facts, the actual facts, instead of Oklahoma's hysteria. The Voice of America newspaper also published a study back in July 2021 using Oklahoma's Department of Corrections statistics, and they showed that at that time about 57 people had been released to the street. So the hysteria that the governor has engaged in I saw a TV show report that he was on. He inferred that something like 76,000 prisoners would be released. Okay. So okay. I'm sorry. I'm are, sorry, Robert. And we've, we've, I mean, we've, we've gone over those numbers and we, we've talked about it. And, you know, I asked, I asked Elizabeth earlier about, about a teachable moment because I, you know, that was something Chuck Hoskins said. He said, this is the most anti-tribal sovereignty governor. Governor Kevin Stitt in Oklahoma is the most anti-tribal sovereignty governor in the history of the state. And he talked about the anti tribal sovereignty rhetoric he's using and the way these scare tactics is not just him it's other other elected officials and political candidates in Oklahoma are using the same words and again this goes back to this notion that people don't necessarily understand sovereignty and they can prey on those fears and that's what I think a lot of what is going on with the governor and some of these other voices in Oklahoma and other parts that have really pushed this Push this uh, Castro Huerta decision. Can you can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, as I was saying, we need to promote the statistics that uh, Rebecca has demonstrated, and also there are economic studies out just in April and May of this year that demonstrate there have been no changes economically in the counties affected by the McGirt decision, and this is information we need to be trumpeting. Now, I want to make a comment about what Liz was talking about earlier. This case is chilling, and trying to foretell the future, there's language in this case that is deadly. Uh, talking about Indian country just being part of the state, and the Kavanaugh opinion cites the Tenth Amendment, which is a savings clause of states' rights that the Constitution doesn't give to the Fed. But these justices who claim they're originalists and textualists, they've overlooked the fact that the Constitution, our founding fathers, the Treaty Clause, the Indian Commerce Clause, which is in Article I of the Constitution, already granted these powers 
federal authority to the Congress, not to the state. So I was most shocked by the use of the Tenth Amendment and by these alleged originalists who believe in what the Founding Fathers meant and intended, and yet they did not cite the Indian Commerce Clause or refer to what the Founding Fathers had done in the Articles of Confederation, etc. But I also want to seek the, the silver lining to the cloud, and so I want the listening audience to be aware the Supreme Court has used language like this in the past. The Nevada v. Hicks decision in 2001, I teach that case every year, talked about Indian country just being a part of the state. So Kavanaugh was sort of repeating that language, but it's the use of the Tenth Amendment that's going to come back and bite us in the future. The opinion also okay. revived what's called the equal right. footing doctrine, which is going Robert, to come Robert, I'm sorry, we're, we're going to have to take another break here, but I'm going to give you a lot of time here when we come back for the break and, and to talk more. Folks, this is a really, really good conversation, timely, really relevant issue here. Supreme Court ruling just came down last month regarding Castro Huerta. 1-800-996-2848. That is the number. Once again, 1-800-996-2848. What are you waiting for? Give us a call. We'll be right back. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're discussing the Oklahoma versus Castro Huerta Supreme Court decision, and there's still time to join this conversation. Call us at 1-800-996-2848, 1-800-996-2848. Go ahead. Just pick up that phone. Give us a call. We really want to hear from you right now on our show today. We're speaking right now with Robert Miller. He's a law professor at Arizona State University, and he's giving us more background on the Castro Huerta decision. He's given us more background on the Supreme Court and this majority decision that came down last month uh, really shocked a lot of folks throughout Indian country, and the dust is still settling here. So I, I want to ask you, Robert, uh, what are some possible directions that we could go from here now that this ruling has come down? Well, I would like to finish my comment about the, looking for the silver lining to the cloud. As Liz had mentioned, states already had criminal jurisdiction in Indian country for non-Indian on non-Indian crimes. This is the McBratney decision by the Supreme Court from 1882. So states had some criminal jurisdiction in Indian country. What the Castro Huerta case decided was that states now also have criminal jurisdiction over a non-Indian who injures an Indian person in Indian country. This is the jurisdiction that over, for over 200 years, it was assumed states did not have, and the federal government had exclusive jurisdiction. Because your audience needs to remember that, according to the Supreme Court, Tribal governments do not have criminal jurisdiction over non-Indian criminals, uh, mm -hmm. alleged criminals. Only under the VAWA decision uh, act, excuse me, of the last few years have we had that uh, right, that power. So the silver lining is that Castro Huerta has no impact on tribal criminal jurisdiction. There was no change there. 
the change is, as Liz was mentioning earlier, every state in the entire country now has criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians who injure Indians in Indian country. So I want us to at least remember that. The, the scary part is what this portends for the five justices and their decisions in Indian law in the future. Okay. So looking at this uh, from, from the big picture, I mean, in terms of, of the intrusion that we're seeing here uh, in, through the Supreme Court decision and what that means in terms of jurisdiction. And thank you for clarifying what these jurisdictional issues are with regard to Quastro Herta. But uh, how big of an intrusion is that? Because this is what I think our listeners are, are, are thinking about. They're, they're probably, you know, we have people all over the country and they're not necessarily in Oklahoma. They're not necessarily going to be in their minds, maybe directly impacted about this, but what they, they they are concerned about is what the intrusion of this means with regard to their sovereignty for their tribal nation, and in the big picture, what is at risk here? What what more could happen? What could this? You know, so often we think of a, of an encroachment on sovereignty, and it could lead to another encroachment, maybe a larger encroachment. What could those risks be, Mr. Miller? Well, in the past, so I've been a, a lawyer for 31 years now, and Indian country is used to losing most of their cases in the Supreme Court. We lost 80%, 75 to 80% of our cases in the Supreme Court from 1986 when William Rehnquist became the Chief Justice and Scalia joined the court until Gorsuch joined the court. Since Justice Gorsuch joined the court in April, I believe, of 2017. Tribes have won eight of the last eight, or I may have lost count, and it's nine of the last nine cases. So he has made a significant difference in the court. So now we have lost a case, but it is one that portends uh, problems in the future. And I think it's Liz who mentioned with Ruth Bader Ginsburg passing and Amy Coney Barrett on the court, we've all wondered what her Indian law philosophy would become. The first three cases that she was involved in, tribes won them. But now she joined the Kavanaugh opinion here that, as I say, is a bit chilling for the future. Yeah, that was certainly something that, that a lot of people were concerned about. Amy Coney Barrett placing Ruth Ginsburg. And now it seems like like her votes are kind of up for grabs. You're not really sure which way she's going to go uh, moving forward. So let's go ahead and have Elizabeth respond to that. And, and let's think about, you know, some of these other possible outcomes. I know some people have mentioned uh, the possibility uh, of having this uh, preempted or or some way to counter this recent decision. Uh, Elizabeth, what's on the table now? So I think there will certainly be a lot of conversations about um, some type of uh, legislation um, in Congress that will uh, clarify um, the scope of states' authority here. Um, I'm sure there are already lots of of conversations um, happening about uh, draft language. In fact, there was some, you know, language included um, in Justice uh, Gorsuch's dissent um, that, you know, suggesting just how, uh, you know, quick and easy it would be for Congress to, um, in an exercise of its, you know, plenary authority in Indian affairs, um, you know, clarify that, in fact, the court is got this wrong and um, states do not uh, presumptively, uh, as a matter of their inherent sovereignty, have uh, uh, jurisdiction over uh, Indian country. 
Elizabeth, NARF attorney Melody McCoy last week, she mentioned that only five states supported Oklahoma on Castro Huerta. What do you think that means? So um, I think that that means, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you know, prosecuting these crimes is very difficult. Um, It's very expensive. Um, And, you know, a lot of the states, you know, the politics around this are actually quite complicated. Um, A lot of the states that have large Indian populations um, and large, you know, swaths of Indian country within their territory tend to also have large native voting populations and or um, relationships between the native population and the legislators in ways that um, mean that they're having these conversations. Um, But, you know, there are also the flip sides of that where there is more of an adversarial relationship and, um, you know, uh, sort of bad politics. Um, And so, you know, because of that, there is, you know, a diversity of of politics at play. Um, And and so um, I think part of what's going to happen here, and this is, you know, going to create more of a challenge for um, education, I think, unfortunately, going forward, um, is that uh, this is going to play out differently across the country um, in how states are going to decide to exercise their jurisdiction or not, um, in how states are going to decide to support, you know, advocating for uh, legislative, you know, fix um, at the national level or not, um, and in how uh, states are going to decide to work with the federal government um, and with tribes, you know, more at the local level to coordinate um, how they might be exercising uh, this jurisdiction um, if they choose to. Rebecca Nagel, I, I want to ask you, seems like state and tribal dialogues right now are really, really, really critical. So what do tribes need to be doing, communicating with states? What conversations need to occur right now? That's that's a really um, that's a really good question. You know, I would say here in Oklahoma, um, I would say where the rubber hits the road is actually um, between those folks working on the trenches. So you know, it's about the communication between the district attorney and the tribal prosecutor, or the county sheriff and the tribal police officer. And what you see in Oklahoma is where the transition worked, where cases didn't slip through the cracks, where victims didn't feel forgotten, is where that communication on the ground between those, um, you know, really those people really working on the ground was smooth. The transition was smooth. And generally where it was not is where those local prosecutors or those sheriffs just refused to work with the tribe, you know. So, um, you know, the Attorney General for Cherokee Nation told me that in some case, in some counties, they got a list of all the cases that the state was dismissing so that Cherokee Nation could go and file those cases before that person ever saw a day out of jail. And in other cases, they had to literally send a prosecutor to the court to sit through the docket so that they would hear about that case. But there, there's one thing I want to add for listeners, um, not to be doom and gloom, but I think there's a lot of reason to be very, very, very concerned about tribal sovereignty and what is going to happen in the next year. And so the words that Kavanaugh wrote in this case are dicta, like a lot of the scary sentences are words that are floating out there and aren't a hard-hitting part of the decision because this was a case not about states' rights and Tenth Amendment necessarily. It was about, you know, prosecution, jurisdiction, and the General Crimes Act. 
but there is a case that's coming up next term that is about states' rights, the Tenth Amendment, and this other issue of the Equal Protection Clause and whether or not um, tribal citizens and nations are a political group or a racial category. And in that case, the people who are bringing it, the states and the individual plaintiffs, are asking way more than Oklahoma was in this case. They are asking the Supreme Court to fundamentally rewrite some of the basic principles of federal Indian law in a case challenging the Indian Child Welfare Act that could have huge implications for everything from gaming to IHS to land rights to treaty rights. And for me, when I read the Castro decision, what was most alarming was what it signaled for what's ahead. And so the name of that case is Brackeen v. Holland. Um, There's four names for it, but that's the common name for it. And it's a case that's seeking to um, overturn, to get rid of the Indian Child Welfare Act. But it also um, is using legal arguments that have big implications um, for tribal sovereignty. And so folks haven't heard about it, if they're not paying attention, I think especially given the Castro decision, everyone needs to be focused on it. And I think it is incumbent on tribal leaders to start talking about what does not only a post-Castro world look like, but what is a post Brackeen world look like so that we are not caught surprised by that decision that could have implications um, far greater than what we've seen this term. And, and on the show today, we, we've used terms like teachable moments. Uh, we've talked about, you know, the fragility of tribal sovereignty and, and what that means. And I thought it was interesting during that webinar last week that I keep referencing Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin. He, he mentioned that that tribes are, are on the path to regaining sovereignty. He didn't say that we have sovereignty. He sees it as a, as a narrative, as an arc, as a, as a continuous journey. And I'm interested, Rebecca, your thoughts in terms of how big a setback this is, and you talk about the future in Brackeen and, and in Child Welfare Act and, and, and what this could mean coming down the road. And again, as a teachable moment, we've got listeners here all over the country. Some of them are non-native. They, they don't necessarily understand some of these issues. They might not think it directly impacts them. We see more and more native people that are living in cities now, living in towns, off reservations, and they might be thinking, well, you know, this doesn't necessarily really impact me. But 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 how do we make people understand? I'm asking you this as, as, a, as a host on this show because we deal with these issues. We've, we've talked about Brekkeen before. We've talked about VAWA. We've talked about ICWA. And sometimes I just know if, if we're not really t- touching the, the right sound bite so our listeners really understand the significance of what's at stake. So um, what are your thoughts on that? How do, how do we approach this as a teachable moment so that our people, our Native people, whatever part of the country and whatever tribe they're on, whether they're urban, whether they're living on a reservation, so they understand the significance and what's really at stake here with this ruling and other recent rulings that have occurred or could occur in the future? It's hard to either have a narrative of triumph or defeat because I think politically it's we're at a complicated moment and we're at a crossroads. And so we've had some real legal victories in the past decade, whether it's with the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act or the McGirt decision. Um, But we're also at a place where there is litigation, namely the Brackeen decision that came out of, you know, a concerted effort that's taken up a lot of money and a lot of years to get a case like this at the Supreme Court. Um, to really gut tribal sovereignty. And that is a 
threat um, that we need to take really seriously. You know, I compare it to the termination era. And, you know, it's not coming from our elected representatives. It's coming from these right-wing organizations, from these corporate lawyers. They're not using Congress to do it. They're using the courts. But there is a concerted effort to really curtail um, not only the authority that tribes have, but the authority that Congress has to legislate on behalf of tribes um, that could be really, really devastating to tribal sovereignty. And, you know, I think what is happening right now that we have seen in generations past is that they're using our children to accomplish this, just like they did with the adoption project and just like they did with boarding schools. You know, those policies mirrored other attacks on tribal sovereignty um, and happened, um, you know, coincided with that. And so I, I would just say, I think the biggest takeaway is for people to pay attention, for people to talk to tribal leaders about it, because really what, you know, what, um, you know, Professor Miller said earlier is, you know, what allows these cases to happen, you know, you don't get a Castro decision out of an informed court. You get a Castro decision out of an ignorant court, a court that is ignorant about what is happening on the ground and a court that's ignorant about the law. You know, I mean, there, there are factual inaccuracies in Kavanaugh's decision um, that are shocking to see from the Supreme Court but because people don't understand it's commonplace. And so um, the stakes are even higher with fracking. So it's more, even more important that people are paying attention and understand, um, you know, those basic principles of federal Indian law and tribal sovereignty. Okay. Shocking with regard to what the Supreme Court has ruled, but not at all out of character with this current court and recent rulings on other other matters uh, that both impact Indian country and don't necessarily impact Indian country directly as well. So certainly very, very challenging times that we are living in right now as Native people. And as Chuck Hoskins said, our path to regain tribal sovereignty. We're going to have to wrap up now, but before we do, let me take a moment to thank our guests, Elizabeth Reese, Robert Miller, and Rebecca Nagel. We really appreciate y'all taking the time to provide so much good information and insight regarding the Castro Huerta Supreme Court ruling. Join us tomorrow as we hear from a citizen of the United Nation who walked from prison after serving 18 years for a wrongful conviction. I'm Sean Spruce. Thanks for listening to Native America Calling. My name is Assad. When I was 19, my mom was diagnosed with colorectal cancer because she smoked. My tip is, find things to be thankful for. I'm thankful she quit smoking. I'm thankful for the nurses who taught me how to check her IV and to manage her medication. And I'm thankful for every day we have together because nothing is guaranteed, especially for us. The people you love are worth quitting for. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. centers for medicare and medicaid services Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico, 
by Kwanic Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.